Hi everyone, welcome to Leukemia Chatters, the podcast from Leukemia Care about all things blood cancers. Um, I'm Charlotte, I'm the patient advocacy manager and the host of this podcast. Um, So October is Black History Month, which is obviously a month designed to uh, celebrate all things that black people have contributed to society. But we thought it'd be a good opportunity to discuss challenges facing black people, issues that they may face in, in being diagnosed or treated with a blood cancer. And therefore, today I'm joined by two very special guests to discuss these topics. So I'm joined today by Oren from ACLT. Hi there. Hi, Oren. And also Vaughan, who is a patient. Hi, hey, everyone. Hi, thanks for joining us, guys. So, Oren, I wondered if you could start by introducing um, ACLT, your organisation, and also who you are and why you're interested. Yeah, ACLT is the African Caribbean Leukemia Trust, um, a charity that's been... uh, doing work in the community um, in this country and abroad for 25 years now. Uh, started from self, uh, self-needs in terms of my stepson, a boy called Daniel, Daniel Gale. Uh, way back in 1993, he was diagnosed with leukemia in April of that year and started a journey of uh, enlightenment and changed, changed our lives completely because after two years of struggling with... Um, uh, chemotherapy and blood transfusions and everything, everything seemed to be going okay. Um, but Daniel relapsed after nine months of treatment and hence our journey into needing a stem cell donor, a bone marrow donor, and the start of the charity that I formed with his mom, Beverly DeGale, um, in June 1996. And uh, from that start, we started to raise awareness about the need for um, People of all ethnicities joining the UK stem cell registry, but specifically those from the black and mixed race communities, because we realized right from the get-go that when we were told that Daniel had a one and a quarter million chance of finding a donor um, in comparison to much lower odds with someone of white Northern European descent, we realized racial racial matching uh, for um, stem cell purposes was so vital um, with less than 600 black people on the register we had to do something, and so that was the that was the seed that that was that was planted in our minds to do something right from there, and we've been doing it ever since, raising awareness and registering thousands and hundreds of thousands of people throughout the years uh, onto the registry, um, and also we've been finding many donors along the along the way. So it started from a self need, but it's expanded to try and help many many other people. Uh, in similar situations to our son. Great work, I think we can all agree. And 600 people is a number I'd not heard of. That's astounding how few people there were. So some great work. We'll come back to talk a bit more about the issues in a moment, but I just wanted to bring in Vaughan and and ask Vaughan to sort of introduce himself and his story. Vaughan, I know you've told your story in some form via our Spot Leukemia campaign where we focused on your diagnosis, but I wonder whether you could just, just say a bit more about who you are and and what treatments you've had and and that sort of thing for me. Yeah, so I'm Vaughan and very interesting, you know, I'm a young man, 34 years old now. So I got diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia when I was 32. And as uh, what you just said, it's an incredible journey to be on. And I understand cancer is obviously not a, a main topic in, in everybody's lives and unless it's 
been close and young family of two kids, young, strong, and within a matter of, I think, two weeks, everything just changed dramatically. Uh, so I was, I was abroad because of the job and that's where I fell ill and I had to be back to the UK. Yeah, and in a matter of days, yeah, I was diagnosed with leukemia. So it's gone from being away, having fun, doing a job I enjoy, to stop. Hospital, treatment, everything's different, everything changed. Then you couldn't see my family. So it, it was difficult. And obviously at the beginning as well, because of what I had, blood, blood cancer, leukemia, the doctors, you know, they were telling me about the donors as well and how difficult it is. If I eventually needed a stem cell donor, then it's how difficult it is for me to find one. So that was initiated at the very beginning and start, starting to look for a donor. So, yeah, so having a diagnosis like that, then hearing an additional, it's like an additional diagnosis on top of it. So it, it was very difficult, but I'm here today yeah. to share a story. So I think the first topic we were going to chat about was issues with stem cell transportation, as both of you have personal experience in this area. And Vaughan, did you want to expand a bit more on how it felt in that moment? At what point during your journey did you find out, what did they tell you before you needed a transplant that it would be an issue? Was it something they sort of prepared you for before you got to the transplant stage? Yeah, so that was touched on quickly at the beginning. Okay. But yeah, so I, I went through two phases of treatment of chemotherapy. So in phase one, that was, I believe, six weeks, if I can remember correctly, six weeks of chemo. So at the end of that one, we had a consultation with the doctors and they said, oh, wow, you know, you're responding well to the treatment. So it seems as if chemo might be enough. So that was like, wow, doing well here. Let's keep it going sort of thing. So I had a two week interval break and phase two is when it, this came about, the stem cell donorship that was needed. So it turns out that we were waiting on an additional test results from the first bone marrow biopsy that I did. So it's to do with the genetics makeup of the leukemia itself. So when that came back, it was very evident that this was a difficult one. And the, the best way to, to fight this is to have a stem cell donor. And that's when the doctor said to me, yeah, that's he said, right, you need to get a donor right now. And that's the case. That was it. So the fact they told you beforehand that it might be difficult to get a donor, was that playing on your mind at that point? No, not really. Because no. I always had the feeling that I would be okay for some reason. Because I, I, I believe in God and all that and that stuff. So I, I think he, he had a plan. So I, I always knew that I would be okay. But when it's obviously that emotion of hearing things like that, you know, it's not just about me, it's the, it's the family and then the friend circle. So what people need to realize, it's not just the patient who goes through a great deal, it's the entire family. So that was the hardest part, thinking about the family or, or leaving them you know, behind and things like that. But yeah, I always was positive that things would work out. And you found a donor in the end, so it wasn't a family member, was it? It turned out to be a sort of a chance event in the end, wasn't it? Yes, it was. So 
we had our family flown over from the Caribbean, just in case. Uh, so what it was, they found some umbilical cords instead, and they came from America. So that was like the last level, and that's the only ones they could have found. So it was very important that this had to work. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this was last chance. Oren, is, we've talked about how there'd been so few donors on the register when you were first looking into this area. Have things changed at all? And are stories like Vaughan's where you have to search and search and search still common? It's a bit of a yes and no. Um, I mean, Vaughan's story highlights the significant difference um, in terms of the possibility of, of finding donors now to when we started, although it is, as Vaughan's just highlighted, and we're, we're aware of, of, of Vaughan, because um, you know, keeping track of, of individuals out there and their stories, that, that's what we have to do. Vaughan is, 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 we're very happy that he found his, his match from the umbilical cord cord cells. Back in the day when Daniel needed his, his transplant, uh, the mid-1990s and, and, and 2000s, cord wasn't really much, of, wasn't an option. Um, and there weren't that many unrelated donors. As Vaughan has found still, you know, no unrelated donors um, out there. Thankfully, things have got, things have, uh, there, there are better options on the cord side. Um, because of the, the, the fact that you don't have to have such a high level of matching criteria on the cord as you do with uh, unrelated donors. Um, but as a rule of thumb, it's still someone like going through what Vaughan's gone through, what Daniel went through. They're a black person they, in this country. They, they have at best at the moment still a 20% chance of finding a 10 out of 10 match. Whereas someone who's white, Northern European, Caucasian, it could be anything from 69% to 90% of finding a really, really good match. And that's just the accumulation of the high numbers of people from one ethnicity as against the relatively still lower numbers from the black community. Right now on, on, the, on, the, on the registry, um, if you take a snapshot of people on the registry right now, there's about 45,000 black people from an African and Caribbean background on the registry, which is a lot better than when we started. Um, but it, there's still so much more to do because of the high diversity of, uh, of people of African descent in terms of this, their bone marrow tissue type and also um, the, uh, just the numbers, just the not, not enough numbers. So it's better in one aspect and we're so thankful that, that one got, got his match um, from the court side, but there's still so much more to do. Absolutely. And I think it's testament to some of the work people like yourself have done so far that we've got this far, but I agree. Definitely, definitely more to do. And in terms of helping people find a donor, what sort of thing do you guys help them do? What What is helping at the moment in terms of raising awareness? We work arm in arm, walk arm in arm with, with individuals, families um, who, who, want to, who, who either want to go public with their appeals or, or, or don't want to go public with their appeals. But what we do, we put the message out to the community en masse, um, pre-COVID, face-to-face um, -face registration drives in 
churches and, and shopping centers and business places and schools, colleges, universities, and so on. We'll be, we'll be doing that, going there, doing a presentation and get people to sign up there and then to take a cheek swab to be checked against to see whether they can be a match down the, down the line. Now, because of, of, of COVID-19 uh, situation, we're, we're doing a lot of that online virtual registration drives where people can, a few clicks after hearing a live message or something pre-recorded by us about the need and how to how to register and what, and what you do if you donate. Then we're, we're working on those platforms now to raise the awareness. And um, at the same time, we're working with the families, the individuals, in terms of counseling support. We don't have the information, finding out who has the information that they need to be able to get them into a place where they feel comfortable with the quality of life that they're going through right now in terms of that journey. And Vaughan, what did you get involved in that sort of thing in terms of donor drives and things when you were looking for, in that gap between finding out your family weren't relevant and getting the surprise from the umbilical cause? What did you get up to in the meantime? Yes, we did went out there ourselves. We we got hold of um, DKMS, so we, we, we contacted them and we we had some kits sent out, some swabbing kits sent out and some registration forms. So we, we, we went out there and we went to Bristol Carnival, which is perfect place that we're families and, and, and you can intercept and have that conversation. And I, I, I remember speaking to one family and, and he, they had their son there and, and we, we're trying to explain to them, look, we're not just here because I need a stem cell donor right now. People need to start thinking about protecting their loved ones, their family, their, their friends. It's the only way it's going to work. And we touched on it earlier about the, 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 the density or, or the tissue type. There's no one else that can do it for us other than our own selves. So we can't go outside asking anyone else. It's, so we have, you have to do it within the, the BAM community, as they call it. So it's very interesting that no one knows about these blood cancers and so forth. And we, we went out and we, we got us, I think we got 50, 50 people signed up that day. So it's, it's very, I'm trying to find a word. Is it discouraging? Not discouraging, it was disappointing. At the same time, we need to educate. The more that we do it, it's, 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 it must get better. And it, it has to be a change because it's, and I think I mentioned this before in one of my interviews, I think, you know, it's, it's the next person you see on social media. Oh, this helped this mother, help this dad, help this young kid. And it's like, when, when is it going to really fix in people's minds that we are the key for this? And it starts only with us. And we're just waiting for the next story, for the next one. And, and it's the next one. And when is it going to really you know, start embedding into people's mind that we have to start changing? Whether it's culturally or, or, or after the religion or personal beliefs, it, it's, it's bigger than that. Mm. Orin, what do you think the barriers are that Vaughan's describing there in terms of stopping people joining the register what maybe not specifically to to the black communities we're talking about here but generally what are the what are the barriers to people signing up to be donors 
It's, it's a good question. The, the barriers per se are numerous um, and general, but, but also specific as, as well to certain communities. I mean, in general, uh, most people, if they had a choice, would not, you know, would not register, would not want to donate something of themselves to someone else. It's a natural reaction. But once with the white community, for example, um, the subject matter of donating blood, uh, the, uh, being an organ donor, uh, and, and, and considering bone marrow stem cell donation sits reasonably well in terms of having the dialogue or the thought, the, 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 the conversation, whether you decide to go through and uh, register or not. With other communities, and we're now speaking about the black community, there has been um, historically a lot of um, defiance um, culturally um, in terms of wanting to engage on subject matters like this because of mistrust. A lot of mistrust born out of historical things that were done way back in our, in our history as, as a race in, in, in Africa and in, and in the Caribbean and in Americas through um, slavery and colonial times. These are things that happened which it's like the elephant in the room. People, people in our community know about this, generation after generation, they know. Others outside our community may not be aware of this. And so a lot of these things are passed down anecdotally for other generations. And now because of the, the internet, it's there, it's there at your fingertips if people really want to find out what, why, is there, why is there this discomfort about stepping forward. It is a mistrust of the medical establishment because of the past. But as we keep saying, sometimes this is now a situation, and Vaughan alluded to it, you've now got to put a stake in the ground and say, look, we are the solution to the problem of our people finding donors. Because our people from outside our, our racial identity cannot be the match. So if we don't step forward, then we are doing a disservice to our own people, creating a real silent crisis. So we, we have to be very upfront and be honest and realize, okay, now we cannot forget the past, but we have to now look at the present and the future and, and consider it is down to us to make the difference. It is getting better. The numbers are proving it, but it's still, there's still a long way to go and it needs to be, become more normalized as a discussion and as an action uh, within, within our community and not use cultural baggage or religious distortions as a way of cloaking and running away from some hard truths yeah. and some hard questions. Mm, absolutely. I think that's a good message to, to put out there, definitely. I, I guess this kind of brings me on to my next topic of discussion, what you were saying there about sort of cultural influences having an impact on, on people's accessing healthcare and doing this sort of thing. I think the next thing I, I was looking at preparing for this conversation was other aspects of the having a blood cancer that could be impacted by your ethnicity and I was looking at the cancer patient experience survey which is the survey the NHS does of all cancer patients and looking at the specific questions that black people scored quite I say badly for example they were they were least likely to report having all the information they needed um, for, for a particular appointment or a test and they were least likely to say they understood the explanation of what was wrong with them is is there a also a not just a cultural or, or individual issue there is there a systemic problem in terms of how black people can access the, 
healthcare system there? I, uh, sorry to jump in, but I think this one, I've, funny enough, I was just speaking to, to someone that I go to church with. And I, I, I proposed the same question to them. I was, you know, why, what's the problem? You know, what do you think it is? And you know, you know what she said to me? She was saying, you see, we black people, we don't like to go to the hospital. We might feel ill or feel something different, but we just do not want to go into the hospital and, and make it known. We always seem to have a remedy. But I, I, I guess, again, I just want people to know to realize that we have to get out there. We have health has to be number one. You feel something different. Don't let the GP tell you, oh yeah, you could go away, have this tablet. If it doesn't change, come back and see me in a couple of weeks. No, it's not fine. You don't feel well. You have to let people know. Health is number one now. Life's just too short to be messing around. Oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do, I'm fearful. I don't like needles. I never like needles either. I've given blood before. And I, I understand that aspect. A lot of people are fearful as well of going through certain situations or, or whatever they think the, the treatment would be or the procedure. But it, it's very simple. It's saving a family's life. And I said this last time, it's not just about the patient. It's the entire family who has to deal with either a loss or a loved one going through something very, very difficult that no one can really control. So that, that's, that's my take on it. It is also a, a, a state of mind process with um, people in our community where it's a combination of perceived uh, systemic barriers um, in life that, they, that people face from, from day to day as has been highlighted right now in this, this summer and autumn of uh, social unrest to do with Black Lives Matter. You've got elements of people appreciate, people saying and, and trying to highlight what they've gone through personally in life, their family, their, their, their community, generation after generation, which then creates a, a situation of mistrust of, this, of, of a medical system, unless until you really need it urgently. And then of course it's in this country because of the NHS, it's on tap. But the same attitudes are, in this, are really similar to what you see in the United States where you don't have a uh, national health system and people have to pay for, for uh, medical treatment. You have even more entrenched views um, there. So there is something within our mental uh, makeup that has created a, a situation where we utilize our own sometimes herbal type of, of, of uh, practitioner in, um, in terms of trying to, to, to fix things um, which have been passed, passed down through the generations and also just not sure whether we can trust a system that actually is for us. Um, we're on the front line of, of the system, as, as, as you know, in terms of the work, the work uh, place. But I don't think people connect the dots and realize you, you really have to self-help, be, become aware, educated, because if you have the education on, on this matter, you, you would you'd be in the front of the queue yeah. to actually help your own. And it's a good summary, but I was just thinking as well, and we were talking here about the results of a survey that I mentioned before, but 
only 1% of the people who responded to that survey were black people and obviously there is a must be a bigger proportion out there of people who were accessing cancer services in terms of addressing the issues from a system perspective from charity perspectives it's going to be really challenging for us to address these issues without the data and uh, is that something you experience as an organization as well in terms of getting that information you need to address these issues from an organization point of view yes it's sometimes the stats the data you need to drive the narrative, the, the discussion is not as good as you would want because of it, the, the lack of interaction between who's asking and the, and, the, and the black community in terms of participation. Um, but what we do as, as a black organization in terms of our, our history, what we, how we started, we're able to go into the community and, and elicit that information um, quite easily when, when if we need to, because of there is a higher trust level in us because they see a transparency in what we've done, what we've gone through. So they trust us as the messenger to engage with them. It is harder for non-Black organizations to make the same degree of communication and trust to even know it's legitimate, it's, it's honest um, approach, but you'll find that and this is not only in the black community, you'll find this in other communities as well, but you, you'll find that the, it's, it's really who the messenger is and rather than the message, who's asking the question rather than, um, rather than what the question is. So sometimes you have to play the game and, and, and work in collaboration with, with organizations, individuals who are gatekeepers, influencers, who can actually get the answers that everyone needs to try and make it better for everyone. Yeah people like Vaughan telling their story and that exactly. absolutely helps and thank you Vaughan for chatting to us today and for the spot leaking your story you gave us it's really important to have a diverse number of voices I mean was that important to you Vaughan when you decided to get involved with this podcast and and telling your story of spot leaking was it important for us for you to be able to share your story as a perhaps a more diverse perspective than we have told before Yes, as I, as I mentioned before, it's, it's how many is going to take for things to change. So I have to do my part. I just have to. I've got my kids, my family, and so many friends that needs to hear. Because everybody seems, you know, they see the outside. Oh, yeah, you're looking well. Things change, looking nice. Things looking good now. But it's very, very difficult. It's, it's the most difficult thing I will ever, ever go through. And my family as well. And I just wanted to point out, you know, the, the medical capability difference as well. Obviously, you mentioned before with the NHS that they, they untap. I'm thinking back home, when all this started with, you know, looking for people to sign up for the donors register, lots of people back home really, really, really wanted to, to do it. But we just couldn't get anywhere. And I'm thinking, wait, hang on a minute. What about the Commonwealth? We are part of the Commonwealth, but yet we have no access to do something as, as important as this. So where does it start? It's all very political at the minute. Oh, we're doing this, we're doing that. But these are life choices. This, this is what matters. So we have lots of people ready to go and we just couldn't do it. And, and that is something that needs looking at. 
Surely, you know, and, and, and I was thinking maybe I need to write a letter what, to a local MP, start somewhere, and saying, look, we need to bridge these gaps. If, if we need people on the donors, but we cannot actually access the origins of the donors back in the Caribbean. I'm not too sure how it works in Africa and, and, place, and other places like Asia and stuff like that. But I know in the Caribbean, it's like if, if I was back home, I would not be here. And that is a massive, significant difference. And it needs to change. Yeah, we live in an increasingly multicultural world. I, I t- totally agree with you, Vaughan. And um, that's something we, we want as a true legacy for people from the Caribbean to, to have, because that's where the source, the biggest source of potential donors are. And we know that if the message is put out there, you, you will get queues, queues and queues people actually wanting to register. Most, most black people, once, once they know about this, they actually do want to register, but it's actually just connecting things up and having an infrastructure, making it as easy as possible for people to, to step forward. And really in the Caribbean, the government's over there and the government here and the Commonwealth should really be working to make sure that the facilities are there to make sure that um, lives can be saved by, by having the masses, not the minority, the majority of people who are of our background having access to a, a, a route to joining the stem cell registry because they could save so many lives yeah. locally, regionally, nationally, but also internationally. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that needs international collaboration. That was a great idea, and I hope you guys can work towards it. Sounds like a really fantastic idea. Yes, I guess something that's something we can work on. After offline, yeah. What do you think about Let's that? Let's add it to our to-do list, shall Yes, we? I think we should. <laughs> we'll have to get in contact. We're up, for, we're up for that one. So my next question was sort of going a little bit back to something you've already alluded to, Oren, was sort of around how we could perhaps make use of the current climate to make some sort of changes. So there's certainly been a, a sort of a heightened awareness of the issues facing Black people in society generally, but is there anything you think the charity sector the cancer sector more broadly could could do to capitalize on some of that and make things better yeah i think this is a, a great opportunity actually to put the message out in a in a very much a general way as to how how important ethnicity is to health to life as we as we're seeing with COVID-19 and its high risk to black and, and ethnic minorities at the moment it's it's highlighting that there are generic dispositions and also racial injustice, which is creating this negative storm of risk to to people of colour in terms of their health. At the same time, the cancer, blood cancers, blood transfusion in terms of uh, um, getting the right blood types to sickle cell patients needing blood to organ donation, matching ethnicity is so important to, to helping one person to another. I think now is a great time and a great opportunity for charities to push the message out and highlight, look, we need black people to be aware that they are at risk, but they are also the strength. They are, they're, they're, there's a problem, but there's a, they are also the solution to the problem of helping each other. We're very much even though it's not totally locked down, although it feels like it in many, many respects around the country, we have an opportunity through the medium of communication to really put out strong 
short messages uh, about how people need to look after themselves in terms of their diet, in terms of their lifestyle, in terms of their risk to certain things of getting what they need to, to survive. Because everything's focused now on on lives and as you say black lives matter people are focusing on that in terms of social injustice but at the same time health so now's the time for really to put that message out stories like like Bourne's and others to highlight look we need more help and we can help ourselves but also we need society to be aware of that to invest in things to make it easier to help because if if we invest in a message about black lives matter we there's actually it makes everyone's lives matter ultimately. So that, that's where I'm coming from. Messaging is now a strong point. This is this is the time to do it because everyone's thinking about one thing at the moment, what COVID has done. So let's work on that. Just to go back slightly to something Oren was saying a moment ago, Vaughan, I wanted your thoughts on the whole COVID-19 thing. So obviously there's been a lot of talk about ethnic and minority people being at higher risk from COVID and as someone who's already experienced a serious disease how does that how does that make you feel has it worried you at all or are you not really that bothered COVID again it's like another kick in the teeth when you're listening to the statistics and, and obviously when things have been released that you know the BAM community is getting hit the hardest again you think oh not again you know and it just it just rejuvenates all these these bad feelings, you know, from the past, and it's it's just making things seem so bad. And it, obviously, mentally, it, it starts to weigh down on a lot of people. And even for myself, I had to I had to be shielding, and I ended up shielding for six months. And at the moment, I I think I should still be shielding because I'm obviously very very high risk. But at the same time, I understand not living in a shell forever. It's difficult and I understand people's mentality right now. There's a lot of battles going on inside. And for me as well. But I understand in the general public what they must be facing. And as Orin said, yes, we might be at risk. But at the same time, we are the solutions for our own our own selves and yes it's difficult but it's it's the only way we have to do it and I, I think we we just need to pressure the right channels on how to get the message out people people need to hear and we can't really we can't stop talking about cancer although covid is of course important we can't stop talking about other other issues like this hence today Thank you both for your time today. It was the topics we could have gone on talking probably forever on all of the various little things I've brought up throughout, but I'm sure we can come back to them on another occasion. And We've even come up with some plans to go beyond this podcast. So hopefully hopefully the conversation will continue um, and, and things will continue to improve. Um, so yeah, thank you for, for listening, everybody at home, and um, please tune in to the next one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline 08088 010 444. See you next month.